Here's my wife of 53 and a half years. And here's my sister in prayer. a good prayer. <laughs> See, you have to take the red pill. And you, you take the red pill by doing two things. You have to totally surrender your life to Jesus because he who would try to save his life will lose it. But if you surrender your life, if you give up your life for him, you'll find it. And it's a totally different perspective. And then the second thing is ask for the Holy Spirit. Because if, you're, if you know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Luke 11. The other one was Matthew 16. You see, it's more than just being a member of a church. It's a kingdom, and the kingdom comes when you take the red pill. It has to go inside you, and then it begins to change you. And so we're not talking about religion here. We're talking about the kingdom of God. And what we've been saying is, based on Acts 3, 19 to 21, which is our key anchor passage, the kingdom of God is a story with two parts, a now part and a then part. The now part advances by means of times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord that always seem to begin with repentance. That's Acts 3.19. But then we come to a place where part two begins. Jesus comes back to restore all things. If we could just get these two parts in our head 
this is the kingdom of God, and this is how the kingdom comes. There's a now part and a then part. When it gets to the then part, Jesus the king casts out Satan so that he can deceive the nations no more. That sounds pretty good to me. We're not there yet. So, apparently, just before part two, part one is going to end with a burst of glory. And we're calling that the third great awakening. So, even though we know the darkness will multiply, and there's been a lot of study of that, you know, there's been a lot. But the glory of God will multiply all the more. That's the thing. That's what we're talking about here. And it's important for us to, to recognize that Jesus Christ is victor. He's the winner. There's nothing to fear. Um, so much of the preaching about the end of the age is fear-based. Not for Christians. What I'm going to describe for you is the story of the light growing faster than the darkness. Okay, we got to get this. And, you know, some of them are, are saying these days, I think Mark Taylor might have been the first one, there's going to be a billion souls won during this season. The third great awakening, a billion souls is prophesied. And I've heard that from a lot of different sources. It seems like the Lord is choosing that title, Third Great Awakening. I don't know where it comes from, really, except that I'll give you a story or two. Um, back when I was still living in Richmond, I, I, I led citywide prayer a lot. So I'd go around to pastors and ministry leaders to their offices so that I could have chats and get acquainted with other people who were ministering in the name of the Lord in the city. The very last person that I visited like that was a woman named Jean Trainer, And she's a very well-known Christian counselor in the city. And um, so I was just getting acquainted. And uh, as we sat down, she said, Doug, I had a dream last night, and the Lord spoke to me. And he said, I am bringing the third great awakening. And then she said, what's an awakening? <laughs> Somehow, she knew that I would have some answers. She did not know me well enough to know that I had researched this for years and years and years. But I gave her the answer of what an awakening is. But she was telling me the Lord called it a third great awakening. Isn't that interesting? So I was needing encouragement about praying for it, and she was needing an education about, you know, spiritual awakenings. That was kind of cool. Some years later... I was leading an early morning prayer up in North Carolina, 
and I happened to pray for the third great awakening. That was one of my prayers that morning. And uh, after the prayer was done, this little lady who had been, she's one of those intercessors that's back in a corner somewhere. She's just spent all of her life interceding. She's a woman of prayer, but I don't even know her name. But I've seen her countless times. So what we call a nameless, faceless person, you know, someone without any reputation. And, and she came up to me afterward, and she had tears streaming down her face. And she said, you know, when you prayed that prayer about the third great awakening, the Lord spoke to me, and he said, it's coming. And she just was flooded with tears because she'd heard direct from God. So it just seems like it's God that's come up with this term, the third great awakening. So what I want to do now is to give you some key prophecies about this. And I'm going to start with two that I've already mentioned, but I just, I just want to make sure that we're seeing the flow of them. So the first one is from 1802. And it came to me years ago from a guy named Bob Lohman, who is a descendant of one of the people in the story. In 1802, which is the end of the first wave of the Second Great Awakening, in 1802, some of the believers in the area of McGrady's churches, we talked about him the first week, sensing a lapse in the revival's fervor and fearing that it was about to end, besought God for many days and weeks to renew and continue the revival in all of its manifestation and his mighty power. There were only a few hundred of these people, and they did not advertise what they were doing. Secretly and fervently, they sought God for the revival to be renewed. After some months of intense prayer, many of those prayer bands were assured by God that just as they had been seeking God for another revival, so another one would come. And that became the Finney revival, Charles Finney up in New York. What they said was that God promised that them that though this revival would not last many more years, there would be another revival for far greater than this one, far into the future, near the end of the age. This revival would come in two waves. The first wave would surpass anything that had gone before it, even the revival that began on the day of Pentecost. The first wave of the revival would be hijacked by ministers and churches seeking to use the revival for their own purposes, seeking to add members to their churches and to build up their kingdoms rather than God's kingdom. Because of that, the first wave of the revival, though it would last a long time, would end. The second wave would not come until a number of years later, when it comes, it will surpass even the first wave in its magnitude and fervor. It will seem as if the whole world is coming to God. That's pretty cool. This wave of the revival will not be hijacked nor destroyed by anyone. Rather, it will continue through persecution 
until the coming of the kingdom of God. Those prophecies were never known except to a few. People who were interceding for the continuation of the revival in 1802 never numbered more than a couple of hundred at the most. They wrote no books. Indeed, most of them could barely read and write. What I failed to mention when I covered the Second Great Awakening is the Second Great Awakening birthed the abolition of slavery. Until that time, it was all arguing, ar this and that. You know, there's a book called Arguing About Slavery that covers that whole thing. It's just boring. You know, it's, it's pathetic. It's going back and forth and never arriving at an answer. But beginning in the Second Great Awakening, God raised up some people. Could you show that first slide, um, Troy? Like Theodore Dwight Weld. Theodore Dwight Weld was, yeah, it should say Weld on there. No, not that one, that one. The guy on the left there, no, yeah. This looks like one serious dude because he was. Theodore Dwight Weld was converted under Charles Finney. Charles Finney never preached abolition. He preached Jesus Christ. But from the time he became that awakened Christian, he was infused with a passion to free slaves. And so you can trace him from Finney's autobiography to Lane Theological Seminary in Cincinnati to becoming the head of the Abolition Society in Ohio, and then he's going to go before mobs and unruly crowds with rocks and knives, and he's going to face them down because he has gained Jesus' heart over slavery. And he's turned into a lion for righteousness. You see what I'm saying? This is, we're going to see this after a while, uh, how important this is in some of the prophecies for the near future. Um, going to produce a lot of Theodore Dwight Wells. There were a lot of these people in... Uh, after the Second Great Awakening, and they were the ones that made the difference. Where did they get this? From Jesus, a time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. You see what I'm saying? All right, the Lord infuses passion uh, in people, and, and I want to I underscore that as we move forward to the next prophecy, which I referred to last time. Okay, let's go on to the next picture there, Troy. And while you're doing that, nope, the other one. I'm sorry you can't see that too well, but the people on the upper right is the first band of back to Jerusalem Chinese Christians with Mark Ma in the middle. He's the guy that had the vision and the uh, word from God that I'm going to read again. 
because he's sensing from the Lord that the Lord has an anointing for him to take the gospel back to Jerusalem through Islamic countries. On the morning of May 23, as I fasted and prayed about the name of the band, that the, the Lord revealed the verse of scripture to my heart, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all the world for a witness unto all the nations, and then the end shall come. I said, O Lord, what does this mean? And the Lord replied, It is this. I not only want the Chinese church to assume responsibility for taking the gospel to Xinjiang, but I want you to bring to completion the commission to preach the gospel to all the world. I asked, O Lord, has not the gospel already been preached to all the world? And the Lord said, Since the beginning at Pentecost, the pathway of the gospel has spread for the greater part in a westward direction from Jerusalem to Antioch to all Europe, from Europe to America, and then from to the east, from the southeast to China, and then to the northwest. Until today, from Gansu on westward, it can be said, there is no firmly established church. You may go westward from Gansu, preaching the gospel all the way back to Jerusalem, causing the light of the gospel to complete the circle around this dark world. I said, O Lord, who are we that we can carry such a great responsibility? And the Lord answered, I want to manifest my power through those who of themselves have no power. So those people on the right became those people on the left. They were, every one of them, imprisoned under communist China, and they lost their lives, and they were martyred as they made their way west. There was one man who was released, and his name is Simon Zhao, the guy on the lower right. Only one who then went back home and started preaching to the next generation the vision of back to Jerusalem. And his word had the power of hundreds of martyrs behind it. The seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. God's ways are different from our ways. Unless a seed goes into the ground, it can bear no fruit. But when it goes into the ground, it bears much fruit. And that's what happened with the Back to Jerusalem vision. You see, when they were in prison, they could only pray. It was all they could do. The prayers built up in a huge bowl, and that bowl is being poured out right now. As those people, 100,000, are being trained right now to take the gospel into Muslim countries from the east. Isn't that cool? Read to you from Peter Tsukahira, who is a Japanese Christian living in Israel, who is putting, he believes, and I believe. I believe he's reflecting God's current heart. His passion right now is to bring Jewish believers and Gentile believers together to pray together for this 
third great awakening. This is what Peter says. Now it is estimated that there are 135 million Christians in mainland China. 135 million! 10% of the total population and double the size of the Chinese Communist Party. The leading edge of this westward sweeping tidal wave of spiritual transformation is defined by the fact that in Asia today almost all the Christians are first generation believers. How does that even happen? Do you get this? It's a, it's a time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. That presence has been moving west, moving west, moving west. Now it's coming right around west into China, west into Iran, Afghanistan, all those countries. Um, I, I'm so excited about that. Because this is back to Jerusalem. You should read it. This is a wind in the house of Islam. You should read it. David Garrison is telling us that since the year 2000, there are more movements toward Christ among Muslims than all of the rest of the history of Islam for 1,400 years. Do you see? It's time for the Islamic world. It's this wave of great awakening that's coming right in. You could almost see this massive tsunami, you know, that's just flowing right through. Just picture it, would you? Picture it. These people have no idea what's about to hit, hit them. And it's just barely begun. That's what a wind in the house of Islam is about. It's already started. But these Chinese and Korean, uh, Japanese people have hardly even gotten there yet. Can you imagine what we're talking about here? This is a great awakening. Great. Never seen the like of it before. Now, there will be persecution. But, man, um, it's going to be something like never has been observed in that part of the world before. So the word that Mark Magad in 1943 was sealed in the blood of the martyrs. I tend to believe a word when it's been given at some cost, don't you? It, it gives it more authority. So what we're seeing is Jesus is behind what's happening in China. And Jesus is king, and the communist regime in China doesn't have a chance. Do you, do you see that? Now, they'll, they'll put up a fuss, they'll kick up, you know, but Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord of history. And it's all coming to his conclusion over here in Jerusalem. Okay, so that was 1943. Here's another prophetic word in 1944. 
Um, and let me explain to you what was happening in Germany. Most people are not aware that Germany was awash in the demonic and the occult between World War I and right through World War II. This is the guy that studied all that, Eric Kurlander, Hitler's Monsters. Now, not many people are going to drag books out for you to look at. That's something unique to me. Because God, the Holy Spirit, works in my life by saying, it's time to read that book now. <laughs> I don't know anybody else who gets that, but it, that's the way he works with me. The thing is, I'm not telling you things just off the top of my head. I'm not giving you my opinions. There are people who have studied these things. They're called historians. And Eric Kurlander is the guy who studied that. And then Hitler's Austria. Austria was more excited about Hitler than Germany was. And so Vienna is in Austria. Carl Jung. This is his autobiography, and he describes what it was like in Vienna. His original encounters with demons. So Carl Jung is the guy who is going to be our favorite syncretist. What's syncretism? Just hold on with me here for a second. Syncretism is where you take Christian beliefs and you mingle them with demonic doctrines to make a whole new entity. Carl Jung devoted his life to that. And he made it intellectually credible so that he became the father of the New Age movement. That's what was happening in Germany and Austria especially. All over the place. Jung was only one of thousands who were into this. And so, we have a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You might have heard of him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a uh, Christian who in the 1930s was on a lecturing tour of America. Well, he saw all this stuff that was going on in Germany, and he realized he couldn't just be living the cushy life in America. He had to go back to Germany, his homeland. And so he took the last ship before the war. And he spent the next four years in Germany uh, contributing to the Confessing Church movement. Confessing Church movement was an attempt to keep all this twisting from happening. I mean, there were, there were theological professors in seminaries, leading seminaries in, in Germany, who were trying to get the gospel so that it would fit the Third Reich. 
Uh, you can read Hitler's theologians, and they're some of the leading Christian names. They didn't take it as far as these other people did, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw this, and he felt like he had to do something about it. So he went back, and he published two books, Ethics and The Cost of Discipleship, very relevant books. And he joined the resistance against Hitler. And finally, evidence came out about him, and he was arrested, and he was put in Tegel Prison in Berlin in 1944. Um, and he was, um, actually April 1943, and he was, he, he felt that as a Christian, he should love his jailers. And so show them love, no matter how they treat him. And that's what he did. And so the result of that was that he gained the favor of his jailers. And as a result of that, they gave him the privilege of writing letters to anybody that he wanted to. So they became his post office. His jailers became his post office. And this is the result, letters and papers from prison. And... I would like to read to you, before we get to his prophecy, his last day, as reported from his good friend, Eberhard Beitke. Sunday, 8th April, 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer held a little service and spoke to us in a manner which reached the hearts of all, finding just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment and the thoughts and resolutions which it had brought. He had hardly finished his last prayer when the door opened and two evil-looking men in civilian clothes came in and said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, get ready to come with us. Those words come with us for all prisoners. They had come to mean only one thing, the scaffold. We bade him goodbye. He drew me aside. This is the end, he said, for me, the beginning of life. And that was September 1944. No, that was um, after that. It was in 1944. Well, a year before that, about 11 months, Bonhoeffer w wrote to a friend of his who had just been baptized and um, listen to this by the time you are grown up the form of the church will have changed beyond recognition we are not yet out of the melting pot and every attempt to hasten matters will only delay the church's conversion and purgation it is not for us to prophesy the day, but the day will come when men will be called again to utter the word of God with such power as will change and renew the world. It will be a new language which will horrify men and yet overwhelm them by its power. 
It will be the language of a new righteousness and truth, a language which proclaims the peace of God with men and the advent of his kingdom. And they, quote, they shall fear and tremble for all the good and for all the peace that I pro procure unto it. Jeremiah 33, 9. Until then, the Christian cause will be a silent and hidden affair, but there will be those who pray and do right and wait for God's own time. Quote, the path of the righteous is as a shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Proverbs 4, 18. Let's just take a quick look at that word, which was given by another prophet who was soon to be martyred. He says, The time is coming when men will be called again to utter the word of God with such power as will change and renew the world. There is going to be an anointing of the Holy Spirit to speak tremendously effectively for Jesus Christ. And it's going to be transformational. It will be a new language that will horrify men and yet overwhelm them by its power. God is not a tame lion. It will be the language of a new righteousness and truth, a language that proclaims the peace of God with men and the advent of his kingdom. He's coming again. And this picture that Bonhoeffer gives us is going to grow right up into that second advent of Jesus Christ, the way he's describing it. Have you ever heard that word before? I, I don't think so. One of those forgotten words, like all of these words have been. Here's another one. Last year, I was in Scotland on a speaking tour. I spoke on Scotland matchstick of the world. You know, how Scotland has somehow been a frequent source of awakenings around the world. Uh, that's another best-kept secret. <laughs> but in 1947, so three years after... Bonhoeffer, uh, Smith Wigglesworth prophesied another word. Smith Wigglesworth was a British word of faith Pentecostal. Yeah, and uh, he's, uh, you know, often, I mean, he was extreme. Let's just put it that way. He was extreme. <laughs> and, uh, but... The guy just, he was just anointed. Yeah, he did. He, he, I mean, he, healing, pe yeah, people coming back to life, all those things. Just a, a man ahead of his times. But um, you see, I think that's what's going to be happening more. I, I think he's speaking out as almost as a first fruits of something. Um, anyway, just before he died, this is what he said. During the next few decades, there will be two distinct moves 
of the Holy Spirit across the church in Great Britain. The first move will affect every church that is open to receive it and will be characterized by a restoration of the baptism and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Hello. We went through this in the 60s and 70s, did we not? So here's the first prophecy check happened. The second move of the Holy Spirit will result in people leaving historic churches and planting new churches. Like the vineyard. Or how about Elam Christian Fellowship? Or just independent Holy Spirit churches everywhere. Just not historic churches. This is going to be a whole separate movement. We used to call it the third wave. Um, people have called it different things. Check. You hear what I'm saying? This has happened now. So now we're ready to look and see what the next part was. When the new church phase is on the wane, there will be evidenced in the churches something that has not been seen before, a coming together of those with an emphasis on the word and those with an emphasis on the spirit. When the word and the spirit come together, there will be the biggest movement of the Holy Spirit that the nation, he's talking about Britain here, and indeed the world has ever seen. It will mark the beginning of a revival that will eclipse anything that has been witnessed within these shores, even the Wesleyan and the Welsh revivals of former years. The outpouring of God's Spirit will flow over from the United Kingdom to the mainland of Europe, and from there will begin a missionary move to the ends of the earth. Well, there we are again. Almost the same type of word. And... Uh, we're seeing, in other words, a confluence. It's like God has given us pieces of a puzzle and we're fitting them together and seeing he's been telling us, he's been talking to us all along about what is coming. Today we have a generation of prophets. I think the prophets of today are of the Lord. I think God is raising prophets up because we're going to need them. Trouble is, we're not used to having prophets. So we don't know how to use them. We don't know how, what, what their exact role should be. We don't know how to relate to them. So we're, we're relating to prophets, you know, almost, I don't know, like fortune tellers. There's something like uh, not very healthy in us. We just want to know what's going to happen. And the enemy plays into this. Fortune tellers, tea leaves, palm readers, you name it. I mean, so many different ways of, you, you just come to me, I'll tell you all about your future. God does not go after that for us. He, there's nowhere in Scripture that he says, come to me and I'll tell you about your future. 
Now he does say, you are no longer my servants, but you are my friends. Because a friend shares his heart, you know. But that's different from telling you what's going to happen. And we've got to try to figure out how to not go down that road and sucker our prophets into just telling us what's going to happen because we want to know. Instead, we've got to look to our prophets to tell us what's in the heart of God. That's a different thing. So let me give an example after I take another swig of my water from Kim Clement. I was going to read you the most widely known prophecy about Donald Trump that was given in 2007. It shall come to pass that the man that I place in the highest office shall go in whispering my name. How many of you have read this or, or seen it? Yeah, yeah, I figured. But God says when he enters into the office, he will be shouting out by the power of the Spirit, but I shall fill him with my spirit when he goes into office, and there will be a praying man in the highest seat in your land. There will be a praying president, not a religious one, but I will fool the people, says the Lord. I love this. I will fool the people. Yes, I will. <laughs> okay. God says, the one that is chosen shall go in. They shall say, he has hot blood. For the Spirit of God says, yes, he may have hot blood, but he will bring the walls of protection on this country in a greater way. And the economy of this country shall ch change rapidly, says the Lord of hosts. Listen to the word of the Lord. God says, I will put into the helm for two terms a president that will pray, but he will not be a praying president when he starts. I will put him in office, and then I will baptize him with the Holy Spirit in my power, says the Lord of hosts. Suppose you had heard Kim Clement give this word. The very next year, there's going to be an election. And you're saying, I know who's going to be president. No, you don't. Barack Obama is going to be president. Donald Trump doesn't even appear on the scene. Can you imagine some people are going to say, boy, I sure am disappointed in Kim Clement. He's just not much of a prophet. Four years ago, and you're still kind of holding on to a little hope, you know. Well, I, I remember when he, used, when he gave that prophecy. It's going to come to pass this time for sure. Nope, Barack Obama again. Okay, so give up on Kim Clement. He obviously doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not a real prophet. False prophet! You know, there's always people that say that about prophets. You know, they're just waiting for a mistake. And uh, so nobody's even looking this time. And God brings Donald Trump right in there and makes him president. Do you see what I'm saying? You know, if, if what you want 
is to know what's going to happen. You see, God could have said, I'm going to do this in 2016. He could have said that. He didn't. Because he refuses to appeal to this unhealthy thing in us. He actually wants us to trust him. Now, he's going to tell us what's in his heart, what's in his mind, but he's not going to give us any details because that's not what prophecy is for. Not even in the book of Revelation. Enough of that, though. That's another thing. He says, you are my friends, and he's, he's going to share what's on his heart, but he doesn't want us second-guessing him. And there's been a whole lot of second-guessing even prophets themselves second-guessing their own prophecies because we're new at this. You see what I'm saying? We're new at this. We don't know how to do it. So we're making all these mistakes because people desperately want to know what's going to happen. So let's just cancel all that and start over and realize God is ready to treat us as friends and to tell us what's on his heart. But it's for the purpose of prayer so that we can pray according to his will. So here's a guy named Tim Sheets. Anybody know Tim Sheets? No? Okay, Tim Sheets, brother of Dutch Sheets, I believe. And uh, he was interviewed by Jamie Galloway um, in November, I think, maybe or October, uh, because he was coming out with a new book about angels. And during this interview, I'm going to summarize what he said in this interview. Mo most of it is direct quotes. The Third Great Awakening will be massive and worldwide. When the Holy Spirit spoke to me, he said he was coming to lead a kingdom revival whereby the gifts and power of the Holy Spirit are going to be demonstrated at levels we have never seen before. I had never considered angels networking before. Certainly the angels would be organized under Holy Spirit supervision to assist the church. And then he referred to Hebrews 1.14. They are going to assist this third great awakening. I have identified seven companies of angels. The greatest days in church history are in your present and your future. Two weeks ago, Holy Spirit said, you're entering into the fullness of time. There will be an acceleration of my kingdom. The greatest move of God is coming, he said. We are headed on a glory journey from glory to glory, stronger and stronger. He's coming for a glorious church. This will emerge in this coming awakening, a powerful gospel that will startle the world. That's almost identical with what Bonhoeffer said. The church will not back down when the enemy comes against us. God is converging all the streams, the best of them all at the same time. See, I've studied all those streams. I know what each of them represents. Most of them started denominations. 
Each one had its unique, particular piece that God was adding back into the worldwide church. When the devil says, boo, we're not running away. The greatest move of God ever, the Holy Spirit, is becoming very aggressive. He said a lot more that day. But I really want to get to my last one, my favorite one. This is a new prophet, Krista Elisha. Have any of you run across her? I just ran across her um, in November, and I've been kind of following her posts. But she had a, an all-out vision, and uh, she was uh, recording that vision. Uh, and I jotted it down word for word. It's long. I'm sorry about how long it is, but um, I think you'll, you'll realize it'll be worth it. Uh, this is the vision. As we stood in the threshold of this door, light flooded the room, and as I looked inside the room, there was this gnarly, naked, hunched-over gray demon standing in the likeness of a man, and he was getting out of bed, and he had red hands. The room was littered with all these red slips of paper, and there was a wooden box in the center of the room, and it looked like there was a lock that had been ripped off of it. It was overflowing with all these red slips of paper. I knew in my spirit that this was an antichrist spirit, a principality that had been operating in gross darkness in back rooms in government and state houses, and it had been manipulating domestic and foreign affairs, even narratives inside of churches. I couldn't help but be put off by the likeness to Gollum in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. The Lord revealed that this spirit was a lover of power, perversion, and money. There were many high-ranking officials who had made evil covenants and even prostituted themselves with it. I really wanted to vomit at the flashes of information and the faces of things that began to flash before my eyes. It was a horror show of all the ways I could see that this thing had infiltrated our nation's most trusted positions of influence. As the light of God's presence entered the room, this thing came into full exposure. Nothing was hidden on its naked body. Nothing was hidden or left to the imagination. It hissed as the light came on, and it screamed and tried to hide under the covers, but it couldn't hide any longer. There was nowhere left to run or any way of escape without going through the Lord of hosts, and we were still standing at the threshold of this room. I looked at the Lord's face. He looked like an upset father who had just caught an ill-intentioned boy in his little girl's room at night. A look of, Daddy's got a gun, and he looked way scarier than anything about the demon. I'll tell you that right now. He's not playing around. He turned on the light, and he came into this room because he was confronting this thing, and he knew he, he was going to deal with it. I knew in the spirit that this thing had been hiding for many years and had been operating in such a way that it had been missed as it slipped around in the darkness. Some had seen it slink behind a corner, or they would see its deceptive movement, or would even smell its foul breath, but it would go largely undetected. 
it was because, frankly, people didn't want to see it. Instead, those who had caught glimpses of it would cover their faces in fear, and they would pretend they didn't see anything at all. Or if they did call it out, they were quickly silenced by the powers that be that were involved in being in bed with this thing. There were faces of men and women that had been sleeping with this thing, but with its exposure came their exposure too, so they couldn't hide under the covers anymore. Well, there's a great deal more. But you see, what I believe God is showing her is the spiritual condition of our nation, the true spiritual condition of our nation. And what she is seeing is God has the power to flip on the light switch, just to suddenly flip on the light switch. And when he does, everything will change immediately. Does this happen? Can God do this? What does it look like? Let me just tell you one more story, and then I'm done. When we came to Richmond, we were immediately confronted by the headlines in the newspaper that Richmond had the second highest murder rate in the nation. And so some of us organized prayer, pastoral prayer at first, and we would have prayer breakfasts. But that evolved into Saturday morning prayer at my church, and then pretty soon it evolved into everyday prayer with a mixed-race group of very earnest Christian prayer warriors. And finally, one of our prayer warriors, Wellington Boone, at Mana Christian Fellowship, organized a meeting of all the intercessors in Richmond at St. Giles Presbyterian Church. And so here was like five, six hundred people, and we all prayed against the spirit of murder in the city of Richmond after a good deal of prayer. Gary Burgle came down from Intercessors for America, the leader of that period of time, <laughs> and and I remember him just nailing the spirit of murder over Richmond. And then a month went by, and there we were still praying every day, every day, every day. And finally, there was a um, headline in the Richmond Times-Dispatch. There hasn't been a single murder in the city for a month and the police are scratching their heads and trying to figure out what happened. But those of us who had prayed knew that God had flipped on a light switch. I don't know how this works. I think it's something in the second heavens. You know, you got the first heaven, which is the sky, the second heaven. The third heaven is where God is. The second heaven is this soup of demonic, angelic stuff that's going on, principalities and powers. Something happens at that level. And you know what? You and I are the only ones who have been given authority to change anything at that level. 
It's either the church prays or nothing changes for the better. So I'm here to tell you that I believe Krista has given us a picture where God is assuring us he can do this, but he needs us to pray. He really does actually need us to pray. So, ending with a scripture which is misquoted about 95% of the time. It says, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. This is not what most people think it says. That we can just go out because we're Christians, we have all this authority, we can bind and loose whatever we want and see all kinds of things that we want. This is, we are getting close to the Lord who allows us to get close to him. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And because we are drawing near to him, we are aligning ourselves with his heart. And therefore, what we bind on earth is already, all we're doing is signing our name on a, a deed or a covenant or, or whatever. He's already signed his name on that thing. He's signing his name on this vision. Do you get what I'm saying? He wants to bring us around the circle. Remember, I shared the circle with you. It's rebellion leading to retribution, leading to repentance unto life, leading to restoration. We've got to get around that bottom part of the circle. We've got to ask God to turn on the light switch. That's the main thing that happens in a great awakening. The lights go on. And people wake up whether they like it or not. In the church, outside the church, it doesn't matter. God is just there all of a sudden. And, you know, I'm ready for that. Aren't you? So, I feel a song coming on. Dear sister, let's sing, because <laughs> I think we're, we're starting to get excited, aren't we? Spirit breaker, break, break all. 